uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. <laughs> this is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. Did you see that? Barracuda. Devices. Huh? What? You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Is it true that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about 10 feet from the beach? Yeah. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish. But I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father? This shark, swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons on him. Hold it up. He's coming straight for us. Don't screw it up now. Don't wait for me. Now! Shoot! fantasies of evil and compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. 
This is your mission commander Larry speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, we're going back to the summer of 75. One of our favorite summer blockbusters here on Planet 8, the movie Jaws. This film changed what a summer blockbuster would be and become. Straight away, let's kick it over to our chief engineer, Bob. Bob, when did you first get to see the film Jaws? Well, being the aged person that I am, I did see it. <laughs> Older and wiser. That's right. <laughs> I did see it in its initial release in the theaters in 1975. Wow. Nice. And, uh, Wow, they had theaters back then. So yeah, I was. <laughs> we could go to theaters back. Then? I, I was fifteen at the time, and uh, yeah, no, it had a big. It had an impact, yeah, you know, not not just on me, but I think on everybody. I think beaches were like empty that summer because it was <laughs> yeah, like right, or the beaches were full. It's just the water was empty. But uh, yeah, when I back in those days, I used to hang out summers down at Mission Bay in San Diego. Uh, a friend of my mom's had a trailer down there. And uh, I used to hang out in the trailer and go down to the beach and go swimming and everything else. Yeah, that summer, not so much on the swimming stuff. <laughs> it's like, and you know, it's like so creepy because I think the thing that really hit me anyway with Jaws was the fact that like you can't see under the water. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're yeah. up on a boat, I mean, it's not like you're looking in a pool and you can see the bottom and, hey, there's something down there. It's like you can't see anything. So it's almost like you're taking a leap of faith just jumping in the water and what the heck is in there. But well, uh, let me ask you this, Bob. How did you find out about the film? I mean, were there commercials? Was it through Creature Features? What, what was the... Uh, oh, there were, uh, there were trailers all over TV. Okay. And, uh, yeah, you'd say, oh, that looks cool. Let's go see it. And uh, I can't remember who I saw it with. I'm sure I saw it with one of my friends. But, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, like I said, I was 15, so it was probably something like, you know, my mom dropped us off at the theater and we went in and saw it. But, um, yeah, no, Jaws was definitely, it was definitely the first summer blockbuster. And it was the highest grossing film until Star Wars came out. Yeah. Yeah, you know, two years later. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, and I was yeah, it was definitely that was the one. And I I think in one of the documentaries they were saying that the distributor didn't want it in as many theaters as, as they could get it in. They only had like I think they were going to get it in four hundred theaters, and he said cut it to three hundred because he wanted he wanted people not to be able to get in there. He wanted people to line up. He wanted to see the lines. Mm -hmm. He wanted it to. You know, hey, you can't go this week, go next week. So that actually stretched it out throughout the summer. Because back in those days, it wasn't like, hey, let's play this movie for like three weeks and then boom, we got to put it out on home video. There really wasn't any home video, home video back then. So you get a movie that starts in the summer, it would play all summer long. You know, even, mm -hmm. even like Star Wars and Spy Who Loved Me came out in 77. Those played all summer long. Right. Yeah, you know, and then once the fall rolled around, then they start transitioning into the fall and 
you know, Christmas winter movies. So yeah, Jaws played the entire summer and you could go see it as many times as you wanted and just scare the crap out of yourself so you never go swimming again. But uh, yeah, yeah. You, were, you were just starting to see multiplexes. Mm-hmm. They were just starting to come in in the towards the mid to end of the 70s and before that pretty much you'd go to a theater and they'd show like one movie and you still had a big giant screen which is oh, the yeah. way you should see a movie like that yeah we had like the Hillsdale Cinema and I think that was like one screen and then the Belmont Theater was like two screens and they ended up splitting one so it came to three but mm-hmm. yeah I mean a lot of theaters around me the Laurel the Manor Tivoli all those yeah, they're all pretty much, they were all like one or two screen theaters. Well, I know uh, the Paramount, the Fox, uh, Alameda, they had one screen and the screen was huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the auditorium had a, a good echo in it. So, you know, they didn't have digital Dolby, blah, blah, blah back then. But um, Well, they were just coming out with better sound systems. Because mm-hmm. wasn't that about the same time that like Earthquake and Midway came out? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And those things were in sensor round, which means they had a huge <laughs> bass speaker that just shook the hell out of the theater when <laughs> when they when they do it. But yeah, so I mean, they were definitely getting into better sound at that point. And, you know, and uh, I will say that when we started talking about uh, doing an episode on Jaws, the first thing that I remembered, I'm I'm pretty sure a lot of people is the the music, John Williams. You know that bump yeah. bump 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 bump. Well, that was his uh, first Oscar was for that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. But they you also had, they had a thing in the documentary where they were talking about when uh, Spielberg went to see John Williams and said, okay, what do you have for me? And he started playing these two notes on the piano. <laughs> and Spielberg was laughing. He goes, you're kidding, right? What do you really have? You know? Mm-hmm. And he goes, no, no, listen, you can... And I think the beauty of the two notes, it's almost like a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So as it's going, da, 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 he can like increase the speed, slow the speed down and actually kind of play with your emotions that way. Well, in the crescendo, you know, with the trumpet, you know, it, yeah. it leads to something and, and there's like a release, you know, this, this pent up mm-hmm. fear of the unknown and then ba-ba-ba. Well, and it goes right in with the the way Spielberg had to film the movie, right? Because the shark wasn't always working. So it's all about suspense and that music fits in perfectly with it because is there is there something there? Where is it? Where's the shark? You know, is it going to strike right. now? So it's it builds up the tension. You know, yeah. that movie is all about ratcheting up tension. Yeah, basically it worked in Spielberg's favor mm-hmm. with the, the shark not working. And it's great. If you watch the documentaries, Richard Dreyfuss has this whole thing where uh, he talks about he's listening to all the walkie-talkies in the background. And it was all, <laughs> the shark isn't working. The shark isn't working. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was basically it added to the suspense because that's the reason why they shot it with the barrels. And you can see the barrels pop up and move around because the mm-hmm. shark wasn't working. So <laughs> I guess the barrels didn't work. <laughs> but... Uh, but yeah, so between having to keep the shark underwater and then having, you know, basically John Williams score to tell you the shark is there underwater, um, 
it really it worked out well because the movie definitely has suspense in it. Oh yeah, I, I mean, it, it, watching it, there were a couple of tricks. I don't know if it was homage or, or what to uh, Hitchcock. You know, the focusing in on someone's face but drawing the camera back. You know, oh, yeah, to kind of show that horror, that surprise. Um, there was a lot of that. Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was great. You know, and uh, and Roy Scheider was I think perfect as Officer Brody. Oh yeah. In fact there was yeah. something that popped up on like Yahoo and they were talking about Jaws, coincidentally enough, and saying that originally Charlton Heston was gonna be Sheriff mm-hmm. Brody. <laughs> and Spielberg basically pick Scheider over Heston because, you know, Heston was making all those apocalyptic movies and he was like, you know, fighting all these different things. They didn't think that he could pull off being scared. Get your fin off me, you damn dirty yeah. shark. Or, or people just wouldn't buy that Charlton Heston was scared by a shark, so they brought Roy Scheider well, in. Yeah, and Roy, you know, he had a very decent career up to that point. The Seven Ups, he was in the French Connection uh, with um, Gene Hackman. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was a he was a rugged. You know, before there was an action hero, he was kind of like the action guy. Well, he he had a, you know, I think Spielberg mentioned at some point, or or somebody in one of the documentaries mentioned that Scheider could kind of pull off an everyman kind of feel, so he could be the guy put into the action and react, you know, in a way that was realistic, you know, somewhat heroic, but not over the top. And I think he did that really well, you know. And of course, the, the scene everybody always remembers is when he's chumming and, you know, the shark comes up and of course he backs <laughs> into the cabin and, you know, you're going to need a, a bigger boat. And that was ad-libbed, you know, he ad-libbed the line and they said, oh, that's great. Let's film it this way. And he did it again. And I guess there was a lot of ad-libbing on the, uh, on the set and uh, Spielberg, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, it, it encouraged people to, to ad-lib and, we saw a lot of it apparently with those three actors, uh, Shaw and uh, Schneider and and uh, um, and Dreyfus. Dreyfus, forgetting his name, yeah. yeah. Well, but, Dreyfus you know, came from like, like a, American Graffiti, and uh, I think that's like his big film up to that point. Yeah, he had been in in some film uh, that what was it, the Education of. Study Kravitz or something right before uh, that and I guess he was concerned about how it was going to do and I guess he was totally terrorized by Robert Shaw on the set yeah. <laughs> it sounded like he was constantly being harassed by him and uh, you know bullied and so forth and it, well, it, it was a fascinating um, set it sounds yeah. like between all the issues with the shark and the actors and stuff <laughs> and Shaw being drunk most of the time yeah well, he's he, he's an interesting guy too because you know he was an actor and a playwright and um, died young, you know, died a few years after making Jaws from a heart yeah. attack, um, but was a really well respected guy. And that whole speech about the USS Indianapolis, you know, they went through a few different guys trying to write the speech, you know, including like John Milius, who you know was did 
Conan and some other movies uh, that people would recognize. And I was like, how are we going to do the speech? And at one point they had like 10 pages and Shaw's like, I can't do 10 pages. So he finally whittled it down and into the, you know, that's like a riveting speech when he's talking about, you know, the sharks circling the men and all this stuff. Um, But that's, you know, that's a tribute to his delivery and capability also, though, as a, a writer. It was very believable, too. I mean, yeah. the way he presented it. And this is, that's the amazing thing about the cast because, you know, they have a lot of scenes where, you know, okay, they're just down in the belly of the boat and they're, you know, drinking and talking and whatever. But when you're watching that, you're not saying, where's the shark? Where's the sh- Show the shark. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you're riveted by their performance and what they're saying and what they're doing. And, you know, I, I think if you had any lesser characters in there, then it really wouldn't have worked. I, I agree. I, I think the way that Spielberg, and again, it, by, by luck, the shark not working, having to shoot a lot of the point of view stuff with John Williams music, you know, the feet swimming in the water and, and we're, we're looking at it from the shark's vantage point. And then rather than showing like limbs flying left and right, we, we find an arm on the beach with crabs crawling on it or you know there was that one great scene and and karen and i had seen the film years ago at the paramount with that head under the boat and it just the whole theater there was like one huge wave of people jumping out of their seats well that was an amazing story too because they shot it and they had a preview screening and no one jumped at that point (laughs) <laughs> and the theater was, or the Paramount, whatever, was saying, no, that's fine. The movie's fine. Green light it. And Spielberg wasn't happy that no one jumped at that scene. So he spent like three or $4,000 of his own money, went into some guy's pool. It was the film editor, Vera yeah, and Fields uh, recreated house, yeah. the that hole in the boat, you know, out of balsa wood or something. Yeah. Got the got the head, and then he shot it like seven or eight different ways. Like, you know, it's like the diver comes in, it pops out. They come in simultaneously, it pops out. You know, so he did that, and then he picked the one that, you know, when he showed it to friends, made them jump and put that in. Huh. And he was happy with it because it made everybody jump. But because of that, it lessened the impact of when the shark jumps out of the water at Scheider. He goes, oh, nobody jumped at that one because they were already, they had already jumped at the head coming out of the boat. And so, you know, they were already looking for other stuff and they were like prepared. So it kind of, it made that seem better and then it kind of lessened the impact of other scenes, but... Well, I guess I'm a nervous man because I jumped throughout the film. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, well, it was, you know... Debbie and I watched it together, and when that head popped out, yeah, she jumped. I was laughing. Yeah, it was well, like, I, <laughs> definitely got same her. Same thing with Jasmine. She was working on a project. We were. I was watching the film in bed, and um, I'm like, "Hey, I want you to tell me what do you think of this scene? You know, I want your opinion." And she hadn't seen the film for at least ten years, so she had no idea what was going on. And it was the head popping out of the boat, and she's watching. She's like, "Okay." All right, and then blah, 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 and she like, and screamed. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
once it was it, worth the the bruises that I got from the punch. <laughs> once it works, it always works. But no, it's funny because uh, I went back because I was thinking, okay, before Jaws, what movies were there that were kind of like underwater horror monster movies that were mm-hmm. decent anyway? Obviously, Creature from the Black Lagoon, but also Monster that Challenged the World. And I watched that because there's a couple scenes in that that are very similar to the scenes in Jaws. Because mm-hmm. there's one scene where there was this paratrooper that came down. He was like underwater, so they were looking for him. And they're on the side of the boat, and they're looking, and suddenly his head pops out of the water. And the, the monster had like sucked all his fluids out, so you know, it was like this pale wrinkled face but it was very similar to the scene of the face coming out of the boat except he popped up out of the water mm-hmm. and then there's another scene later in the movie where this girl goes swimming in the water with her boyfriend very similar to the scene now obviously in Jaws the boyfriend was too drunk or the guy was too drunk to go in the water so he's yeah. kind of you know <laughs> falling around fumbling around trying to get his shoes off and she gets, so, you know, you see her head and then she kind of like reacts like something touched her and then her head's just like pulled under. Almost the exact same scene in Monster that Challenged the World. Ooh. Yeah, except that except that her boyfriend is out there with her. But yeah, it was, uh, I, yeah, I'm sure Spielberg loves all these movies, so I'm sure he got inspiration from a lot of these. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean... There were those films, and of course, you know, then you go to the kind of the lesser films like Phantom from 10,000 Leagues or whatever, and uh, Giant Leeches and whatever. But I think I think Spielberg definitely got a lot of inspiration from Creature from the Black Lagoon as well as Monster the Challenge of the World. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, well, I mean, and it's, it's also interesting to think that they just thought well we're going to make this movie in the ocean <laughs> you know with all the problems that come yeah that was the, the first movie ever to be shot on the ocean right you know everybody else is using you know the the big water tanks or maybe they're in you know like a, a semi still body of water a lake or something that no we're going to we're going to try to do this on the ocean and you know obviously it was uh, quite problematic, not with just with the shark, but then they were talking about, you know, people would come by on a, a boat or something and they, it's like, okay, we got to wait an hour for it to get out of view. And, right. you know, they just had so many issues with making this film and it set back production so much. And I mean, man, if this thing had not been a blockbuster, mm-hmm. Spielberg's career would have been in the toilet. I mean, this he he had Dune and he had or not Dune, sorry, Duel and uh, Sugarland Express that he had made. But you know, this was what really made him as as a uh, director. And uh, right. you know, if this had not turned out to be, but it was like he made uh, lemonade out of lemons. You know, he he didn't have any big name actors. The shark wasn't working. You know, all this other stuff. But it all turned out in his favor. Well, it was yeah. nom- it was nominated for best picture, although it didn't win. Yeah, it was actually beat out. But I think it was Godfather Two won that year. There was a lot of good movies in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> but, yeah. I remember at the Monster Palooza show where they had a lot of the 
the guys that were involved with the film and in production and, and the shark and stuff like that. And they were saying, you know, seawater is not friendly to not just the mechanics of the shark. And they, they were saying the shark was like pneumatics. It wasn't hydraulic. Right. You know, so, like, you know, if, if the pneumatics go, it ends up farting, you know, or sounding like a fart, just the air going through the pistons. But the film, the cameras, I mean, just oh, yeah. just doesn't work well in seawater, saltwater. So, yeah, I mean, talking about Monster Palooza, there was one year we went down and they had a reproduction of the orca mm-hmm. with all three actors, you know, as mannequins, basically standing. Yeah. You know, the bow of the orca. And it was amazing. You, you just expected them to come to life. That's how lifelike they were. And, uh, you know, my friend Kevin and I were standing there admiring the orca. And this guy comes up behind us. He's like, excuse me, can you take my picture in front of the boat? I turn around. It's Greg Nicotero. <laughs> and, you know, it's like Nicotero, basically, he and a friend of his built that that orca and the actors and all that. So I'm like, oh, sure, you know, here, take your picture with me too, you know, but uh, he was really cool about it. But yeah, it was just an amazing, amazing prop. Yeah, I remember seeing that. That was, that yeah. was nice. It's I interesting think that, I think that how, was the like, one that, that think, impressed me is almost, you know, I mean, usually when I go down there, Mike Hill has like the centerpiece in the dealer's room, whether it's Jack Pierce working on Frankenstein or it was a teenage werewolf one time. And uh, I think this is the only one other than that that really impressed me. I really impressed me. It's, I think it's interesting that um, for like genre fans, we tend to group Jaws in as basically like a horror film. Yeah. But I don't think if you ask the general public, I don't know that they would think of it as a horror movie. They would, I don't know if they would just think of it as like a suspense film or an action film. Um, I agree with you. You know, I mean, I think it's, one of the best movies ever made. I mean, it's it's uh, all around. You look at, you know, the production, you look at the acting, the writing, the, uh, you know, the music, everything. It's it's up there in quality. So it's it's one of the best films ever made. But, I mean, you, you can classify it as a, a horror film. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, it's a suspense film. It's, an, it's kind of an action adventure when the guys finally go out on the boat and go to hunt the shark and then find out they're being hunted. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into any one category. I, I kind of wonder if that's also one thing that has made it so successful or, or, you know, helped it have such an impact on so many people. That's a very good point. Um, I, I will say I, I watched Jaws 2 and they did monster up the shark. They, they, you know, scratched the right side of the face early on in the film. It got uh, into a fire on top of a boat. So th- that scratched, marked side mm. of its face was also burnt. And it just, it, you saw a lot more of the shark in the second film, which to me really took away from the suspense. They, they tried to monster it up more. In my opinion, not mm-hmm. not you know totally like the creature from the Black Lagoon, you know the the thing was still hunting. Although for some reason it had it in for Brody's kid, <laughs> you know, it chased all those kids on the on their boats. Jaws too didn't really the attacks weren't really on the beach. It was out in the ocean with these kids on their catamarans. 
Um, but yeah, that that was a good point to bring up, Karen. Well, I mean, you know, it's talking about the shark. When it did work, it worked amazingly well. And it was like, you know, a really, definitely a step up in movies. Because, I mean, you know, before Jaws, if you said, hey, we're going to have this big mechanical shark, it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Or it'd be some guy swimming around in a shark suit. But, um, <laughs> but no, they were like two sharks because they had to leave one side open so they could get to all the, all the, uh, mechanics in there and it's like they had like a left shark and a right shark because one had like the left side open the other had the right side open so depending on which side you were shooting from you know you, you wouldn't be able to see the big hole gaping hole in the side but it was uh it was definitely a feat of mechanics and you know again that's probably the first time anyone had really attempted to do something like that because it was 25 feet 25 feet long right so, you know, obviously there were growing pains and it had its problems, but but when it worked, it looked like a real shark in the water. Well, and I, I will say, um, having been to Universal Studios in Hollywood a number of occasions, uh, they have the tram tour and the tram tour will take you through, you know, old New York and, and um, you know, through the European village where Frankenstein and Dracula, you know, marched through the clock tower for Back to the Future, they also have a portion that takes you into Amity. And the the Jaws shark jumps up out of the water. And there are key scenes in that sequence, one of them being the the two guys trying to catch the shark and throwing a the guy's a pot roast. His wife's pot roast and (laughs) and the, the entire pier gets pulled into the water by the shark that's part of the ride they don't got the two guys there but the the pier gets torn out uh there's a small little fire and then george the fisherman's out in a boat in the middle of the in the middle of the well what's supposed to be the ocean but it's you know the lagoon and universal studios and you see the shark fin come up and circle around and the music's playing and the tram rider's like george george get to the shore and the boat falls under and the guy goes under and there's a you know thing of blood that squirts up <laughs> very graphic and as the tram moves along the shark comes up on the side of the tram with its mouth pushing open and closed open and closed i guess over the years you know the elements or budgets haven't been too kind to george george is now a scuba diver just popping up out of the water and then the shark. this is I think we went last October for the for the Halloween haunts, and and the boat was no longer there. George is now a scuba man, uh, but the the shark still works great. It's a very effective portion of of that ride. Yeah, I remember seeing it going on it years ago, and uh, yeah, when it pops up and you see all those teeth gnashing back and forth. It, it's still it's still pretty scary. It's a lot and of fun. I think that's you know that the visceral power of the movie is still there, and and this is the thing I think nobody really thought that much about sharks until Jaws came out. And I know you guys, you know, you grew up in California, you Northern California boys, and I'm I grew mm-hmm. up in the Central Coast region, 
Although, yeah, you know, uh, Bob talking about going down to San Diego and uh, yeah, I was either on the Central Coast beaches or down in San Diego with my cousins in the summer times, you know, swimming and snorkeling and body surfing and and all that. And and then as an adult, you know, um, in California or, you know, being lucky enough to go to like Hawaii and Australia and snorkel and surf and stuff there mm-hmm. every every time I get in the ocean. Every time I am thinking about, well, you know, there could be a shark out here every time. And it's that thing, like Bob says, you can't always see under the water. Now, if I'm snorkeling, I can see pretty good under the water. But if I'm swimming or surfing or something, it's like, you you know, you're taking a chance. And and it's all that awareness is all because of this film, really. Well, that's Everything when, that's when you have to carry your bat shark repellent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will say when I saw the film, I, I can't remember how old I was. I, I wasn't even 10. I, I was probably like seven or eight. And I was that bratty little cousin. My older cousins took me to go see it. And, you know, I'd watch Creature Features with them. I remember watching Phantasm with them. Um, and now you see what that's done to me as a young boy, uh, a grown man, <laughs> <laughs> forever changed my life. But I remember just having troubles taking a bath and closing my eyes under the water. You hear that song, let alone going to the... And I don't know what what's worse, going to the beach and having goggles and looking under the water or not having goggles and not looking under the water because you hear that music. Da-dun-da-dun-da-dun. It, it just... To this day, it, it, you know, I'm a little trepidatious going into open bodies of water. Well, I think I think the thing that got me was I saw the movie mm-hmm. and I read the novel during that summer. So I was probably sitting on the beach reading the novel. It's like, <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think That's I'm going in the water today. Not, not too good, Bob. Uh, you know, one thing I came across that being a geek that I thought was kind of cool um, – you remember the trailer for Jaws? It's very iconic, and there's this wonderful uh, narration, deep voice, beautiful voice. Well, you know who that was? That was Percy Rodriguez, who played Commodore Stone uh, oh. in Star Trek, in <clears throat> right. uh, the court martial episode. Yeah. And he uh, he was in one of the documentaries, and he was saying how you know, and he does this whole line where he goes, you know, if it is it is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws and all this other stuff. He he does this narration; it's fantastic. And he says, well, you know, when they gave it to me to read, he was like, they wanted me to do sort of this high pitched kind of like you know, frantic, kind of scared, like high pitched thing. And he goes, no, no, I've got to do it like calm and sort of under under the music like with the music and calm and deep and it was like perfect when you hear that trailer i i you know i went to youtube and threw up the trailer and listened to it and i was like oh my god it's still like the perfect trailer you know where he's just you know it is a killing machine he's like really flat and it's just like the shark you know it's like just yeah. steady and calm and just like the music it's a great trailer oh well, it's, just, it's just like the movie you know building suspense yeah yeah, it's, it's so funny it's, you say that, and now I hear it, and I'm like, oh yeah, that is his voice. Yeah, it's Commodore Stone. It's yeah, yeah, it's great, great guy had a great voice. It was reminiscent. Uh, his voice is reminiscent of Orson Welles in a way. Maybe the the monotone or the the lower part of his voice, as I think about it. So he's a, one of those rich, 
yeah. deep voices. Yeah, I would love to have a beautiful voice. Yeah, he's got a great voice. But uh, yeah, just another one of those things about Jaws. Everything came together perfectly, even the trailer, right? Right. It's just, you know. That was one of the things I noticed, too. Spielberg had nothing to do with the second film at all. And, you know, they, they kind of tried to mimic his style. But um, it was, Je- I'm going to butcher this name, Jeannot. S-Z-W-A-R-C. I'm not even going to try <laughs> for now. Schwarz? <laughs> yeah, and he was like the second director to come in. The first director, it just, Universal didn't feel he could pull off an action uh, film. And Jeannot, coincidentally, had directed um, Somewhere in Time, which is one of my favorite films. And oh, I, I digress. Christopher, Christopher, Christopher Reeves? Reeves, yes. Uh, and he also did uh, directed Supergirl. Hmm. Yeah, kind of an interesting little tidbit. But um, one of the things I noticed in Jaws, Spielberg was developing the quote-unquote Spielberg-like, you know, awe moment or the exciting moment or, you know, the 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 moment where there's um, jeopardy and and stuff like that that we saw later on in films like Goonies and um, E.T. You know, um, he was kind of refining it in Jaws, and so it's interesting to watch it in that regard. You know, to see what was he thinking, where did he want to go, and where did he end up going, and because that may have worked so well in Jaws, he carried mm-hmm. over into other films. Yeah, and it became part of his style, yeah. unintentionally or not. Well, luckily, he didn't find the uh, intensely backlit scenes that he used in a lot of films after that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Close Encounters, uh, I guess. Key the backlight. Yeah. (laughs) But, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you consider, like Karen said, you know, he had only done a couple films before this. This was, yeah, it was definitely a leap of faith to put such a huge film into the, into his hands at that point in his career. Oh, Universal took a huge risk. I wonder, was Universal behind the movie Duel? I think so. Yeah. And well, that, he, oh, that go ahead. Not, it wasn't made for TV. I think it played maybe in Europe or Canada in theaters, but in the U.S. it, it was a TV movie, or they, they played the movie on TV, mm-hmm. so... He, you know, and it's a decent movie, but he really didn't have the. I don't know why they they chose him. It's he, he had the connection with Richard Zanuck, so ah, uh, okay. you know the producer Richard Zanuck had worked with him on uh, Sugarland Express, and uh, I don't know. I unfortunately didn't do the research to see if he'd worked with him on uh, Duel, but uh, Zanuck really believed in him. And when Zanuck, Zanuck and his partner, um, producing partner, had bought the rights to um, Peter Benchley's novel before it was published, you know, these things get floated around in the publishing world, or they used to. I don't know how it works now. And it was Benchley's first novel. And it was kind of unheard of that, like, a first novel would, would you know, blow up the way it did. And so they read the – Zanuck and his, his buddy read the novel in, like, one night. And they were like, oh, we got to have this. We got to have this. Um, And then they both thought that Spielberg 
could do it. They had a lot of faith in him. But they they later said, you know, it was a good thing we didn't read it twice because if we thought about it, how the hell are we going to get a shark to do all these things? And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like you, you can't train a shark to do this stuff, you know, and how are we going to make it happen? So they they realized, you know, once they had bought it, then they were kind of like, oh, yeah, what are we, how are we going to do all this? Um, but yeah, they, they were lock, stock and barrel with Spielberg doing it they had a lot of faith in him and and not to take away from spielberg but i i will say you know before cg and, and there are movies that have cg that really stink but before cg you had actors that really had to act and Bob <laughs> mentioned this before these guys really sold this film i mean the acting is superb well and, like yeah you really invest in these guys right yeah. i mean because, like, you think about the ending, I mean, basically, they blow up the shark, and it's kind of ridiculous. Like, oh, yeah, he shoots the, the cylinder in the shark's mouth, and he blows up. If you think about it, it's pretty ridiculous, and it's not at all like what happened in the book. The book, I, and I didn't read it, I know Bob did, but apparently they harpoon him, and then the shark sort of sinks and suffocates and dies. Mm. But that's not very cinematic, so not Spielberg... Holly. Right, right. Nobody who wants to see that, right? It's not exciting after you've been chased by the shark and it's been killing people and stuff. You want something big. So they were like, we're going to blow up the shark. Um, so, yeah, so they came up with this big, you know, exciting ending. And uh, I would have if, loved to have been part of that meeting. Well, what are we going to do? How we end the shark? We'll blow it up, Bubala. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> But, you know, it wouldn't, I think if you weren't invested in all the characters, maybe you, you, you'd be like, oh, that's that's BS. That's, all right, right. Get out of here. But because you've spent all this time, you know, just sitting there going, oh, my God, where are they going? Oh, no, they now they killed Quint. And, oh, my God, what's going to happen? You know, you're just as relieved as they are by the end. You're like, oh, my God, thank God they killed that thing. You know? You're not questioning, wait a minute. <laughs> You're like, thank God they had the tank on the ship and they could use it that way. <laughs> thank God he could aim that gun so well while he's hanging <laughs> off of that mast and the waves are going up and down and the shark is going up and down in the water. And Well, it's okay. it took him a couple shots to get it. but <laughs> Smile, you son of a... Yeah. So open wide. Yeah, they didn't have... That's, that's another thing that was good. Yeah, they had quote humorous lines in there like you're going to need a bigger boat or whatever but yeah they right. didn't have the uh sort of over the top action comedy you know mm-hmm. quotes right. which well, i think yeah, was kind of started by bond i mean you know sean connery had all his little quips when he'd kill somebody or whatever but but yeah no, i thought it was great but you know you talk about that scene and obviously at that point you think that Scheider or brody is the only character left because uh, Hooper had gone down in the cage. And there was this great part in the documentary that I, I fascinated me the most was how they got that whole sequence of, oh, yeah. of Hooper in the cage because they started off, they went down to Australia and there were a couple of shark experts down there and they got a real shark to swim around the cage, but it was obviously it wasn't 25 foot long. So they got a midget and put him in a smaller cage. Well, he was a little person. Oh, yeah. He was like 4'10". But yeah, they scaled down the cage so it made the shark look bigger. But that scene where where the shark gets caught 
above the cage and he's like thrashing around that actually happened down mm-hmm. there in Australia and they just kept it in the film but then they had to come back and then they had to go into the tank at uh, I think they used the MGM tank for that but uh, then they had to put Dreyfus in the cage and then have uh, the mechanical shark you know bust his nose through the cage and all that but mm-hmm. um, yeah but mere, you know, putting all that editing it all together you can't tell like this is the fake one this is the real one and whatever and it came off great right. I mean they got lucky because uh, that live shark yeah got stuck and then just ripped the hell out of that cage I mean you know they were just hoping well we'll get the shark to circle around maybe he'll you know run into the cage a few times and then we'll cut into the mechanical shark will have this mechanical shark you know bite into the cage and i think in the book uh hooper actually gets killed by the shark but because the the uh live shark you know was tearing the cage up and they had some shots where it was empty they said oh well we'll make it look like he you know he got out of the cage so the character got to live but yeah again it's like they just had like incredible luck even though you know things maybe didn't go the way they intended. They turned it into a, you know, they turned it around. Um, but yeah, that was a cool story. I, when I saw that, I, I was like, Oh wow, that's neat that they managed to, you know, turn something that could have been a negative or whatever into a positive. Well, I, I will say, you know, we talked about some of the humorous parts in the film, but when, uh, Sheriff Brody's, you know, looking at these books about shark attacks, and he's like, eh, "Where's Michael?" And the wife's like, "Oh, he's in his boat up the dock." He's like, "He's in his boat at the dock." He runs out the house. Michael, get out of your boat right now! But Dad, it's tied to. The- I said, "Get out of the boat!" And the wife's like, "Oh, Jesus, honey, it's tied to the dock. Let it be." <laughs> she looks at the boat of the shark, like ripping out the hull, and she's like, "Michael, get your ass out of the boat!" <laughs> it's just little moments like that. It doesn't really take away from the suspense. It it adds to the film overall i think yeah Yeah. it lets you cut off a little a little steam just a little bit and then back to the suspense and you know i i love the relationship that he has with his wife that that she is that calm in the storm when you know all this madness is going around and he can go home and she's like hey you want to get drunk and fool around and he's like yeah let's get drunk and fool around (laughs) it's like and that was that was definitely in the movie because in the novel, she actually has an affair with Quint. Oh, jeez. Yeah. But they, they cut that out. I mean, it would have just been extra stuff that wasn't needed yeah. in the film. But when you have a novel-length story, you can add things like that. But yeah, no, she definitely she had an affair with Quint in the book. Huh. That's funny. Well, yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think any of us got into Jaws 3D, The Revenge with... Uh, Lewis Gossett Jr. or uh, we, we talked about for the revenge and it just got ridiculous at that point where you know somehow these sharks I guess it was a family of sharks there was always another shark coming up in the fourth movie they were hunting the family um, Michael Caine was was uh, in that one I don't know I you know maybe I'll watch them but uh, I think I was good with two and two wasn't as bad as I remember it being, uh, like I said, the two things that really struck me was making the shark look more like a monster, right? Because in the film, it was just a shark. And um, 
taking the killings off of the beach and out into the deep blue sea. One of the things that was interesting, too, is the tagline for the second film was just when you thought it was safe to go back to the beach. Was it beach or water? Or I the remember. Water. Sorry, go back yeah. in the water. Yeah. Back in the water. So. Well, and you, and you look at like its impact on movies. I mean, look at all the movies that came out after, like Piranha, and uh, and how Orca. many movies just Orca. Yeah. They stuck sharks in. You know. Look yeah. at Lucio Fulci. He had the uh, the movie Zombie. Zombie, zombie yeah. Two, whatever yeah, you want to call it, and he had the zombie fighting the shark. It's like, yeah, that was a direct Jaws influence. Well, yeah, even cartoons. Hanna-Barbera had a... Jabberjaw. Jabber, that's right. He sounded like Curly from the Three Stooges. I yeah. never understood, but I was a kid. So I was like, all right. <laughs> you go with it. Going, yung, yung, yung. <laughs> we had Fonzie jump the shark. <laughs> that's right. right. Fonzie jumped the shark. He also had that was the cartoon. Was it Street Sharks? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Street yeah. Sharks, too. So that had a, had a big effect. I mean... There's no more Jaws films, but, you know, we talked about the Meg. Uh, Karen and I saw did Bob, you didn't see the Meg, did you? Yeah, I saw the Meg. So, uh, yeah, so all three of us saw the Meg. I mean, there there are shark movies out there, but I don't think anything is going to be. And one of the things I'm happy about is they never tried to remake Jaws. You know, they're, yeah. they're remaking this, they're remaking that. They left Jaws alone. So I think that's a good thing. So far. Yeah. Yeah. So far. And you know what would happen if they tried to remake it? They Everything would be CGI, so they'd be showing the shark the whole time, and they'd be showing every bit of, you know, chewing somebody up underwater and ripping them apart, and it, it would just be a gore fest. I mean, it wouldn't. there would be no suspense. Well, I think that's that why Jaws is such a classic, because every movie that's come after it, including its own sequels, yeah, you see the shark and everything in great detail right and that it suspense really is, the suspense away. and the build-up it's all missing yeah there, there was a film recently probably within the last three or four years jazz and i went to go see it at the movies and it was this lady surfing in like baja, not baja it was some oh beach, the i saw beach. it too yeah yeah and it really made the shark seem like her enemy Right. Whereas, you know, in actuality, it's just a shark. Um, I mean, I guess that's the negative is that I think a lot of sharks are relatively harmless to people. Uh, but now, you know, people fear them and sometimes go out and kill sharks for, you know, no real reason. So it's not great for the, the shark population out in the wild that they've got sort of a right. reputation now. Well, you know, thank thank Jaws for a lot of things, but <laughs> it was also the first movie that was like heavily merchandised with char, you know, Jaws lunch pails and stickers and t-shirts and what have you. And of course that was ramped up to a whole new level when Star Wars came out. But yeah, I mean, oh yeah. Jaws definitely had a lot of merchandise out at the time. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't come out when the movie came out. It came out like months after the movie was out because they realized, hey, this is a big hit and we can sell some stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. It paved the way for the, the modern summer blockbuster. For sure. Oh, for sure. Well, look, guys, we're coming up towards the end of our podcast here. And um, 
usually we'll have our sensor sweep at this portion portion of the show but um this past week we had gotten news that uh chadwick bozeman had passed away and so uh we wanted to take a moment and just kind of um you know honor him and his contribution to fandom and um you know, share some thoughts, uh, Bob, Karen. Either one of you want to start us off with that? Well, I mean, it was definitely tragic. He was only forty-three years old, and I guess he had been battling colon cancer for four years. So back, yeah. going back to like two thousand sixteen. So you have to figure that uh, he was probably diagnosed shortly after he shot Civil War. Right. And after that, he was in, you know, Infinity Wars and, of course, Black Panther and Endgame. And he also had a couple other uh, films at the, around the same time. So he probably filmed like five or six movies while battling colon cancer. And they kept that a real big secret. I mean, who knew? Because when they announced his death, it was like a shock. Like no one was well, expecting and- that. One of the things I was reading is that his inner circle really loved and respected him. Um, th- this news shocked everyone. It, it didn't come out any time during his treatment while he was fighting this disease. Yeah, that's and, th- and that I think is a testament to him as a person and how much they respected him. Uh, that they, you know, kept his personal life private. And I, you know, I was very close to someone who had colorectal cancer, and I can say uh, it's, it's a lot. I mean, to go through chemo, mm-hmm. radiation, the surgeries, uh, it can be very debilitating on a person. Uh, the fact that he continued to go out to make movies, but not only that, but, you know, he's out there working with. Uh, children with cancer in hospitals, right. you know, doing doing all this stuff. By all accounts, you know, a very giving and gracious person. Um, it's just always hard to see someone who seems like such a, a great person, uh, you know, cut down, especially cut down young. But mm-hmm. man, during this year when we have had to go through so much already to lose uh, a good person like that it's just devastating yeah I was just looking on uh, internet movie database I mean let's say okay let's say that he found out shortly after Civil War well he shot Message, Message from the King Marshall Black Panther Avengers of Infinity War Avengers Endgame 21 Bridges and The Five Bloods all wow. since Civil War and and you think about Black Panther, and it's like you know a lot of a lot of people in this era, they try to kind of force thing you know the quote woke movement or whatever, and they're trying to you know make make characters out of you know different races, whatever. But with Black Panther, when that came out, I think that hit the perfect note. Because I think that really resonated with with black people. I mean, just if you saw the impact it had, I mean, obviously, you know, we're close to Oakland and uh, the director of Black Panther was from Oakland. And 
you know, they did a lot of charity work with that film. And yeah, I mean, I think black kids growing up, you know, there were kids when Civil War came out and of course Black Panther. It, this probably is going to hit them hard because he definitely became a hero for that entire, you know, sector of the audience. You know, as an actor, I think his role as Jackie Robinson, um, you know, was phenomenal. The uh, Thoroughgood Marshall in, in the film Marshall, I mean, he ended up winning the NAAC Image Award and a Screen Actors Guild Award for his Black Panther portrayal. But, Bob, I think you're right. There's a lot of young African-American youth that, you know, finally, much the same as reading the comic book, There, there's a comic book hero or there's a hero that looks like me. And, you know, Chadwick was very cognizant of that. And, you know, a lot of his charity work uh, was, you know, around those efforts. Um, look, when he'd go visit the kids, it didn't matter if you were white, black, Chinese, you know, Japanese, whatever. Um he he um, he he did good work uh, on the screen and off the screen, and um, you know if anything, I hope that you know whenever something like this happens, there needs to be someone who comes up and picks up the torch and runs with it. And I'm I'm hoping that there will be another person that can come and and do the fine work that Chadwick did. Well, he was really cognizant of what Black Panther would mean to African-Americans. And one of the things that struck me, and I remember reading this when the film came out, um, was that when he was hired to play Black Panther in Civil War, uh, originally they wanted him to take on an English accent. Like he had been educated, like T'Challa had been educated in like an English university or something. And he, he told them, you know, basically, no, look, he should have an African accent because Wakanda was never colonized. Wakanda, right. you know, was never conquered. And so, look, we're, to, to take on an English accent, a European accent would be sending the wrong signal to people about what happened in Wakanda, about, you know, this, they're creating this, this image and this sort of dream for people to have, right? And so, you know, he made this, he made this pushback and they said, okay, you're right. You know what? You're right. So he stood up immediately when he took the role and understood the gravity of what he was doing. Right. Um, and I thought, you know, this is a smart guy. This is a guy who cares about what he's doing. A lot of guys would have said, ah, it's a comic book movie. Who cares what I do? But, you know, he realized that he was going to make an impact. Um, and that's impressive. And, you know, he is a smart guy. Howard University graduate. Um, did a lot of uh, work outside of, of film that, uh, you know, right. like you said, with charity and other efforts and stuff. So we lost a good person. You know, it's just, what can you say? 2020, again, it's been a crappy year. Um, but like you, Larry, I hope that, you know, um, some good will come out of this somehow to his family and, and friends, you know, just condolences. And I think that's what kind of put his character above like Sam Wilson or Rhodey because he was, he represented an entire nation, 
And, you know, you're looking at his whole culture and background and everything in the Black Panther. And, uh, yeah, it's like a whole, a whole world separate from the MCU. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that the MCU clashes with and he's brought in. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, there's much more background to his character than it, than like the other two. Indeed. You know, and I, I was reading too his, uh, the film's going to be released posthumously. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it's going to be released on um, Netflix later on this year. Mm. So I'm looking forward to see that. Um, well, supposedly on this date that we're recording this podcast, I guess ABC Tonight is going to show Black Panther and have a whole mm. tribute to Chadwick Boseman. There you go. So, uh, anyway, guys, we, we just wanted to share our thoughts and uh, obviously our prayers for um, his family. Um, I know he's, he's got a wife and I think a daughter. So, um, yeah. it's it's a tragic, um, you know, tragic time for them. In any case, um, this brings our podcast to a close Um, You guys take care of each other, and uh, we'll see you all very, very soon. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end.